Blog Talk Radio. show is now in the air spotlighted on badredheadmedia.com as a top author podcast on the web today and called a total blast of a show for writers my name is robert batista and you may ask why is the funky writer show so terrific because i'm a writer just like my guests and know that words are the breath of life Connect with the show on the exciting Twitter page by going to at the Funky Writer. Writing requires daily solitude and self-discipline, yet we writers need teachers and peers if we hope to improve our craft. Best of all, I've enjoyed mentoring kids and teens who are interested in creative writing and incorporating healing music therapy activities that involve writing activities. These opportunities give my work a deeper sense of meaning and joy. These are the inspiring words of today's guest, Rebecca LeClaire. Rebecca LeClaire, welcome to the Funky Writing Show. It's so nice to join you today. It is very, very great to have you, Rebecca. Your resume is so vast. Um, I'm so excited to have you on the Funky Writers Show and discuss your first writing and publishing effort, Radiohead. Please give our audience a synopsis of what your book is about. Well, Radiohead is a fast-paced sex, drugs, and rock and roll novel about a 19-year-old girl with a magic ability to hear music in others just by touching them. Mm. It is. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's set in L.A., and um, it's about a 19-year-old girl, and she's had a hard life, and she's been abused and neglected, and she's kind of shut herself off except for the headphones that she wears. And um, she has begun communicating through what she hears, and she begins to hear more in music than the music itself. I think we all do, though. Yes, yes, that's an excellent, excellent premise. You chose to write the story in first-person narrative for the central characters, Shelby, Zach, Roland. Why did you decide to take this route in telling this story? You know, I felt it was more intimate, and it, it was an exciting journey, really, to speak in other people's voices and to get into the heads of other people. But I really felt like as I began uh, writing it as in third person, 
I wasn't with the character and I wasn't experiencing their life alongside of them. And I wanted to really have the reader commiserate with the daily pains and to understand that, you know, some people do some crazy stuff or have some off the ball kind of points of view, but there's a reason. And I think that if, you know, given certain circumstances, maybe we're right to think the way we think. And I wanted the reader to give my, um, my character's that credibility. You know, it's awesome. I did the same thing. Uh, I was working on a piece, a novel, and it was in the third person, and it wasn't working. And no matter what I did, then all of a sudden I got the brainstorm, let's try it in first person and go Mm -hmm. from the protagonist's point of view. And I was off to the races, and uh, the (laughs) the book really, really zoomed after that, so that's great. Um, One of the characters, as you mentioned, Shelby Ray, can hear you like a song, Mm quote-unquote. With one touch, (laughs) she's in tune with your every hope, every secret. Wow, how compelling is that? Talk about (laughs) the genesis and creation of the gift of Shelby Ray and how you morphed this brilliant aspect into the story, Rebecca. Um, That's a tough question. You know, I think it all came down to a really simple origin there are songs I think that stop us in our tracks and that just that we hear and we, and it makes us hold our breath for a moment. And I started to think about how meaningful music really is and how important it is for, especially for teenagers, as a mode of knowing oneself and expressing oneself. And I think that we all do have a song inside and that it changes from day to day. Sometimes it's anthemic and sometimes it's very sullen, but, um, I do feel like music is one of those languages that it is common for all of us, no matter what language we speak around the world, no matter what age we are. And so I think that um, having somebody who was hurt was a great place to start with how music can heal, but also as she moves into the rock and roll, rock and roll world and she deals with um, adults who, have, you know, who are psychologists and who should know how to handle certain problems, they all are affected by music equally, and they all have a different approach to it. I also actually wanted to look at how there's a lot of rock and roll stars in history who've had drug problems, and I wanted to just look at the connection between drug addiction and creativity without passing judgment on it. Well, that piggybacks into my next question, which you said earlier, uh, the Books blur, but Radiohead has the good sex, drugs, rock and roll narrative. Um, and as you said, from Jim Morrison to uh, Janis Joplin from the 60s all the way up to, to certain rock and roll rockers today, uh, drugs and rock and roll are, you know, are, are synonymous. Um, how much did that really affect her? Did it go back to her childhood and then metamorphosize from that? How did she Shelby handle this aspect? Well, um, Shelby is a drug-free person. She doesn't like it. Her parents are both abusers, and she steers clear of any kind of narcotics or alcohol herself. She is in a position, her father um, was in the military and was on you know, too long of leaves and too long of, of uh, tours of duty. And, you know, he suffered from PTSD and eventually commit suicide, which is actually a 
really harrowing statistic that more people in the military die from suicide from um, tours from Afghanistan than in the line right. of duty. And that's, that's horrifying. That makes me very sad. And I wanted to bring that to light again, you know, just to, um, as a sense of feeling for those families. So her father left her with nothing except for his AMSM radio. And so that's all she has of him, and it helped her to just close within her own world and just tune into music and, and really essentially not deal with life. But in there's a, a very famous band in my book called Grounder, and the lead singer, Zach, is narcissistic and uh, borderline personality and he's very extreme in every single way. You know, he puts people on pedestals or he vitrifies them, and he drives too fast, and he's He's a, he, he's, all over, he's a rock star. He has unprotected sex, and he, he's, you know, he lives his life to the fullest. But there's a guy right. in his band who is a heroin user, who is a musical prodigy, and he feels like, gosh, this guy has no musical training, and yet the music that comes out of him is brilliant. And the band is doing so well because of this person who really shouldn't have success in, his, in Zach's eyes. And so Shelby meets this person who has a heroin problem and she realizes that he is a lot like her. He can hear the music. He can hear music in the everyday. He can hear music in other people. He can use music to express his feelings. And for him, they've lived a very similar life. They both have heard this music and for him, he's turned the volume down using heroin. That's how he's dealt with it. For her, she's just tuned out with her headphones. And so... Together, they find that a path where they can be free of, of, of thinking that it's a prison and using it more as a gift. And I would say, Robert, that most of the things that hold us back in our lives, most of the things we consider obstacles, are actually secretly our gifts if we look at them in a different way. Like Wayne Dyer said, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Exactly <laughs> what you're saying. Exactly. Uh, Rebecca, in the original draft, the protagonist Shelby spoke only using song lyrics. That exercise mm-hmm. spawned research and listening to hundreds of songs across many eras and genres. Rebecca, talk about this extensive and what seems like intensive research of all <laughs> this music. How were you affected? Oh, well, that was it was fun in that I, I embraced music from every single genre. I just looked at what the radio gives us, and the radio gives us pretty much everything from every genre. Right. And, um, of course, you know, you can't print a bunch of song lyrics. It's just copyright laws. But it um, helped me to see music on such a universal level and to realize how – Gosh, how important it is for young people to have music when they're in their teenage years. It is a time when, was when between eight and eighteen is when our music really is imprinted on our brains, and we have those connections. And the reason that music is so intense at that time is because it's shared. We're in a time of bonding and a time of uh, learning about ourselves and about defining ourselves. And um, as it turns out, it's actually a really great pain reliever for children if they play their music loud, and I know lots of teenagers like to play their music loud. <laughs> I know I did. Um, the louder, the better. Actually, the, the sacculus in the brain releases endorphins, and it ends up being a, a pain reliever. And if, for children who are in 
critical care in a hospital. It actually is extremely therapeutic and saves them from some needs for medication. But more interestingly is that music stays with us. And for people who are, I'm doing a, a, some research right now on Alzheimer's. And as it turns out, when people are in advanced years and their brain is going through the atrophy of Alzheimer's, the music that we have that we loved and in, in our early years are still there, and they're stored in the frontal lobe, and that's the last part of the brain to atrophy. And so even patients that are incommunicative, who are no longer moving, can listen to the music that mattered to them and wake up and have conversations and have memories. And it's like this, this doorway into getting our loved ones back. And it only lasts for a window of time. You know, it lasts sometimes for two, three hours, but it's gaining speed as a as a viable form of alternative medicine. So I really, it opened up a, a huge world of music for me. And I ended up, I've gone into classrooms and I've done creative writing activities with students, especially high schoolers. I think it's really important for them to love their music and play their music, no matter what it is, no matter how, what their parents think or what their friends think, to really embrace the music they do. And so I love to do creative writing activities with students in classrooms. And I hear you go to classrooms as well, Robert. Yes, yes, that's true. Um, uh, but on what you said, two things that jump out at me is, in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the, the way that the aliens and the humans on Earth understood each other was through music. Da-da-da-da-da. Mm. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. I don't think I have. I should check that out. Yes, but, but that was how they communicated, through the scales, um, which was which mm. was brilliant. And the other thing... Um, talk about um, people who are aged and and how they react to music. My mom was in an Alzheimer's unit in the hospital in Brooklyn, New York, and I saw her deteriorate. But one of the things, as you said, is when the nurses put on music, and a lot of times it was the soul music from the 60s or the Beatles or something like that, or even beyond that to the 50s, my mother would basically become alert. So, oh. you know, I, I, I relate to that so much. And one of the other things you just said is between the ages of 8 and 20, studies show that music stays with us the longest. And I found that also because a lot of times I think back to the time period of my life. Why do you think this age period is so significant in our music retention, Rebecca? It comes down to bonding. Music is about connection and um, statistically, the things that three times in our lives that are most poignant for our music relationships are um, when we're children and we're singing, having our parents sing us lullabies or singing Wheels on the Bus with us. And then right. as teenagers, you know, we find our tribe. We try so on songs and we move from band to band and we find our groups of friends that we like. We find out who we are. We have our first love. We have our first dance at our wedding. <laughs> you know, we move into this period where music exactly. is very attached to self-discovery. And the, the third time that it's most important in our lives is when we have our own children and we sing the lullabies and we play the music in the car that we like and they're our captive audience in the little car seat in the back. <laughs> and so we live through all that joy again with our children. And so the reason that it stays with us is because in all those instances, it's shared. 
It's this thing that we're not alone with our headphones in a corner. We are out on the dance floor. We're holding our baby. We're singing together. And, you know, singing is an experience that is, um, medically gives us a feeling of safety and peace, which I, I don't think that even has to be explained. People know that. It's a wonderful form of communication. So I think that bonding is the, is the, real, is the real core of it. Rebecca, you have graciously agreed to read a part of your story for us. Can you set up the piece before you read it? Sure, absolutely. You know, I picked something that would be um, really easy to, to accept. It's, a chap- it's chapter one, and so everybody is on the same ground. We don't know who the characters are yet. And um, as in the book, as you said, it was first person, and the first person to speak is Shelby. So she's on a she's on a bus. Let me know when you're ready. We're ready. Okay. White coats say I'm crazy. I never met anyone else who can do it. Get an earful of everything that makes up a person just by touching them. It's a one sided conversation, a blind confessional, listening to a stranger who can't hear me. And lonely. Music is my only friend. How's that for crazy? The westbound bus going under the freeway and into Laguna Beach is a good long ride. Three full loops should fill the time until Mom goes to her night shift. I dump my backpack in the next seat to block anyone from sitting there and put my headphones on. Out the window, the early morning traffic rushes to change lanes. I wish I had somewhere to go. I can't stay at Mom's apartment much longer. When I was little, I thought I'd enlist like Daddy. We always had a decent place to live and food to eat. And we moved a lot, which I really liked. It seems we were able to pick up and leave just when the county social worker got wind of my bruises, the kind a kid gets when her parents are falling down drunk or when one finds out the other is getting a little side action. I try to ignore the noises from my stomach. There isn't much to pick from at the apartment. A lot of things don't agree with me anyway, and I don't find out until my tummy starts that deep ache, a sharp stab right in my center. We lumber on through traffic, lurching occasionally to a stop. New passengers shuffle on, an immigrant mother pushing a baby stroller loaded with groceries, surrounded by two silent children not yet old enough for school, and an older lady in a maid's uniform clutching a lunchbox. The women are careful not to meet each other's gaze, yet they both scowl at me. Next on, a guy with a 12-pack in a grocery bag who eyes me hopefully, I hate mom's clothes. Between the silver tunic and the heels, too big and too high, they probably think I'm either hooking or on my way to dance at mom's club. I swear I never will. The manager says, tells me no one will ever pay me as much as I could make dancing. This sniffs of a lie. Seems to me it's mom who pays to dance. Maybe not in cold, hard cash, but she's definitely paying something cold and hard. I thumb the dial on my radio and close my eyes, rolling the tuner back and forth, dusting the last few specks off a station that plays music without words by people with extraordinary names like Tchaikovsky and Haydn. Their music fills me more than I can bear, saturating and stretching me from the inside like when I think about what happened to Dad or that time when I threw up and the school nurse stroked her fingers in my tangled hair for almost an hour. She wasn't mad and she didn't wish I would just go away. They call it classical, which cracks me up, because the instruments and melodies sound so unlike the other classical stations, classic 80s, classic rock, and classic oldies. Sometimes static interference becomes the DJ, broadcasting stations at the radio frequency's whim. But it has to be music, any music. 
I don't listen to people talking, talking, talking about stuff that happened to someone somewhere or the weather or the Bible. I already know the story they're going to tell because I hear it in the music. Songs are all about those things, even when the lyrics aren't. The rise and fall of the tempo and the melody tell all the talker stories of troubles, of triumphs, of people hurt or lost or reunited. There's nothing the talkers can say that the music hasn't already told me. As the bus edges closer to the coast, I keep a watch for a half dozen stops or so. There's a change to the mood of the passengers the closer we get to the beach. The listless stares at the scuffed, black-matted floor become far-off glances out the window into the salted marine air. Conversations shift to plans for the weekend. Excitement grows. There's buoyant hope for the possibility of fun. A couple squeezes up the steps of the bus, hip crushed against hip in the narrow entrance. The only double seats are avail- available are next to me. I turn my gaze away as they approach, whispers toppling one another as they exchange ideas for how best to spend a day by the water. I can almost feel the warmth of their regard for one another when I realize I've been holding my breath, longing for my own connection, a hand to hold mine that won't let go. You mind, the woman asks standing over me. I pull my backpack into my lap and she plops down, her thigh wedged too tightly against mine. Through her touch, I can hear her. The song she holds inside, the rhythm of her selfish assumption, if no one finds out, no one gets hurt. They're cheers, truants, I can tell. Escapees from marriages no longer joined at the hip. I replace my headphones to my ears and turn up the volume, singing to myself to drown her out and stare hard at the asphalt scudding by below. I need to keep moving forward. When I get some money, I'm moving away. Old enough to live on my own, Mom says. I wish Dad was still around. He'd point me in the right direction. I figure it's no coincidence that all I have left of him is his old AM-FM radio. I think he meant for me to have it. Maybe he'd put back a few too many, but he told me he bought it for Grandma, who passed around the time I was born. She really got into pop and electronic music back in the early 80s, he said a faraway admiration warming his drawn face. She just wanted to dance. He didn't sleep for several days. The radio exhumed a glimmer of the boy he used to be, held him afloat for a while. Like a stupid kid, I told him he should have gotten Grandma an MP3 player so he could load her favorite songs. You've got to tune into the pulse of the moment. It's a chance encounter, Shelby. That's what she used to say. There's a sudden sting where a few caught strands of my hair are yanked from my head. My music is stripped away in one motion, like pulling a band-aid left too long over a wound. I gasp and cover my ears where my father's headphones should be. That's it. Oh, I I was waiting for more. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much for that, Rebecca. Rebecca, a five-star Amazon review by Steve Hogg states, Radiohead's conception is brilliantly unique, and yet it will resonate, pun intended, with everybody. The characters are wonderfully (laughs) developed, and I love how they all speak for themselves rather than being narrated for. It adds to the emotional roller coaster that this story becomes. It's the kind of book that pulls you in so deeply that it takes a couple of days to float back 
to the surface once you finish and then leaves you hoping for a sequel. Wow. Emotional yeah. roller coaster pulls you and deeply flow back to the surface. These terms are usually given to seasoned authors, and you hit it on your first book. My hat's off to you, Rebecca. Seems like Thank he you. felt you every step of the way, huh? Thank you very much. Yes, that was extremely heartwarming. This, you know, the best part of writing uh, the readers, that's the best part, is the, that reaching out to readers and, and having them hear us as writers. Would you agree? There's nothing, nothing better than that. Um, Rebecca, talk about the publishing process. We have so many writers who want to know how books were published. Uh, what were some of the challenges, if any, in getting this radio head published and out to the world? You know, I think the difficult thing for a radio head in the beginning was knowing where to put it on a shelf. You know, when you go to an agent and they go to a publisher, they want to know who the audience is going to be and what that comes down to is what shelf it's going to be under at the bookstore. And even though Selby is 19, um, because of the content, a lot of um, the consensus was that it was YA. And I don't think so. I think that the book really resonates with older people. Right. But, um, but that was the hardest part, I think, was figuring out who, because there are, are it's first person, and there are a lot of adult voices in there that are not teenagers. I mean, Shelby's the youngest, and she's 19. So right. um, I think of it as an older book, but it's not, uh, you know, there's, it's got some profanity in it, but it's not graphic, and, you know. So it ended up being YA. That was one of the hardest parts of it. Another part where that was hard was that, it's not romantic. There are definitely there's a romantic triangle between uh, Shelby and Zach, and then eventually Shelby and Stanford. But in a romantic trope, usually the the lead, my rock star, who is a gorgeous guy and that absolutely loves her, is a narcissist, and he is a shallow person, and he has a lot of issues. He's got more than she has, and so in a romantic trope, he, of course, would redeem himself and become her dream man, and he doesn't because it's not. It's, it's, it's contemporary mainstream fiction. It is not a romance novel, and I think that, um, I don't know, I think in the beginning there was a desire that he not be who he is, that he be this romantic ideal, and I, I you know, I right. feel like there's room for a book too for him to redeem himself, but it would take an entire book for that guy to come into his own. So, and I wanted to, you know, Stanford has a drug addiction. You know, he's a heroin addict, and that's not a romantic uh, characteristic to have in a leading man. But I also wanted the challenge of making him lovable. He's a lovable person, and there's been some hard things in his life, and that doesn't fit the the formula, you know. So that was, I think, those were the hardest parts. Let's I think talk when about. We, go ahead. Oh, when we look at saleability of books, I often find that fitting in with a certain genre is extremely uh, beneficial. So. Yes, yes. Yeah. Formulaic to a certain degree is is beneficial to a certain degree. Um, let's talk about Rebecca LeClaire, the person. Where did you grow up, and what was your early childhood like? <laughs> I grew up in Canada. I'm from London, Ontario. My family is all still there. They all live within five minutes of each other. 
Um, I loved writing stories. I think most writers will tell you that. My dad used to give me 10 cents per book that I made that was a story, with <laughs> illustrations, bound, you know, with a cover page. So I was selling books when I was in second grade but to my father. Um, and I always wanted to travel. And when I got into college, I studied liberal arts in Toronto. Um, and I spent some time overseas. I did a semester in Salamanca, and I spent um, – and I moved to Vancouver, and I did graphic design there. But I lived after that for 18 years in Southern California. So I'm, I was at home with my characters, but I now live um, on an island off the coast of Seattle. For early childhood, I always liked animals, and I always liked music, and I especially loved Christmas music and singing along with things. And I am a terrible, terrible singer, but I love to sing, and I always have. What were some of the books and authors that inspired you in your youth? I was all about the classics. I used to uh, save up my babysitting money and my tour money, and I would go to the bookstore at the mall, and I would get, I would just buy the classics. And so I really, I liked you know Vanity Fair, and I liked uh, Charles Dickens, and I liked D.H. Lawrence, and I. Whatever I, I wanted to read all of the classics before I was 20, which I, I feel like I did a really – I put a good dent in that. <laughs> but those were definitely my favorites. Rebecca, you and I are kindred spirits, as you spoke of earlier, in that we work with the youth in schools. Mm-hmm. I know you co-facilitate a teen writing program, visit classrooms, and created custom grade-specific activities for students in the first through 12th grade. How did you mm-hmm. first get into this? And talk about what one of your writing classes might entail for high school students. Okay. Um, I was, it was really a surprise, actually. I volunteer for a group that's here on the island that puts on uh, literary events. It's a nonprofit group, and we bring in some great writers to do classes. And one of the people that's in our group couldn't make the after-school teenage program. She used to volunteer there, and, and she wasn't able to go. So she asked me to step in, and I thought, what's with teens? I don't know. But I really respected this person, and I wanted to do her a favor, so I showed up. And then I was blown away by the quality of writing and the intimacy that, that they had, the children had among one another by sharing their writing. And I was really moved to think that, you know, here's this place in their lives where they have so much going on inside them emotionally and to have a place to put it on paper to see how they would take a problem in their lives and apply it to a fictional character and give that character the problem. And then the whole group together, when we would do a, you know, quote-unquote critique, we would find solutions for that character, which was really the person, right? And so it just became this wonderful thing that I was witnessing and I couldn't get enough of it. So I, that's it. I took over that role and I became the, uh, I work with an MFA on that, on that project at the library. For high school students, it's a lot of fun. I'll go in and often what we'll do is we'll listen to music that they like and we will rewrite the lyrics. So we'll take a favorite song and then we'll listen to it and then we'll say goodbye to it and we'll break it down and we'll look at all of the um, verbs and adverbs and, and the, um, the point of the, each, each line of it and we'll make it our own and we'll choose our own protagonist. It could be us. It could be somebody that we're pretending to be. And 
we'll use the, the measures and the words to make it our own song. And it can be an angry song, and it can be a dark song, and it can be a child to a parent, it can be friend to friend. And we use what we love to make it our, to say what we need to say that we've been holding back. And so it looks like a fun creative writing program, and it looks like we're just listening to music and making up our own songs, but really it's kind of therapeutic. So I'll do that, and oftentimes when I'm in the classroom, the teachers want me to talk about making dynamic fiction characters or how to structure something or, you know, working with dialogue. So I'll do some classic lessons that go with creative writing. But when I bring music into it, usually we rewrite songs. I know when I do my classes, Rebecca, in schools, I am amazed at how much I learn from the students as yeah. well as they learn from me. Do you also find this to be true? Yeah, it's, it's really humbling, actually. There's times when we'll do writing prompts, and we'll have it timed, and then at the end of it, we'll say five minutes, you can write about this one thing, and they'll come out with something that is incredibly brilliant, that honestly... I have I write full time and I have I you know I study things and I just I, I have books about writing and I don't come up with these ideas just off the cuff like a lot of students do so it's it's humbling really <laughs> yes it's it's amazing to see the language that they use and the characters and the situations and it's really amazing to see that young writers go straight into um, an incident you know when, when I was growing up I think. I felt like books always started with the setting and where the whole thing unfolds, whereas a child, teenagers now begin a story with the inciting incident, which is how it should be and how, how it's wonderful and it's exciting. And they just know that intrinsically, and I, it's, it's, it's extremely exciting. Excellent point. Um, you have another book called How I Learned to Play Guitar. Can you tell yes. us more about this? Sure. Um, it is in final development. It is with a developmental editor who's going through it line by line, and I should be doing final revisions this spring, and then it should be going out to be queried. It's middle grade, and it's kind of a mashup between Easy Rider and The Wizard of Oz. And it's about a 13-year-old boy. Easy Rider and The Wizard yeah. of Oz. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, I have a 13-year-old boy who is living with his mom in Tulsa, and a tornado hits, and they lose their house, and the mom uh, is in the hospital. And all he has left is his father's old Martin guitar. And so he takes off, not with her blessing, on a road trip. She doesn't know about it. He goes across the country to find his father, and she believes that he's with his aunt. And so he has this cross-the-country odyssey along Route 66. And along the way, he comes across a variety of characters, and each person teaches him something different about playing guitar. And his goal is to get with, to see his father, who he hasn't seen in seven years. You like the idea of that? Okay. I, I love it. <laughs> each person he meets teaches him something new. Uh, what mm -hmm. a great premise. Um, what's next for Rebecca LeClaire? What other irons <laughs> do you have in the fire coming up? More books, a sequel to Radiohead, or what? You know, I have an outline for the sequel to Radiohead, but I'm not, I'm not there. That's not where my heart is right now. I have right. got two projects that are kind of vying for my attention right now. One is um, having a, a teenage band that's set here on my, the island where I live. 
And I have been thinking about um, drumming as a language, the way Morse code is a language. And so I'm trying to formulate a story around that. Um, secondarily, I am, Radiohead introduced me to the Children's Music Fund, which is a nonprofit organization in Santa Monica, California. And they do wonderful work. They go into hospitals with two-hour your, your children up to 20-year-olds, and they bring instruments, and they do amazing, miraculous work to help kids in, in, who, are in serious, who need serious help with music therapy. And I've had the opportunity to learn a lot from them, and I really support their organization. And we are kind of talking about making a workbook for teenagers to use music to help heal themselves and to use music to understand their feelings and sort of go from dark places to light places. Because we all know teenagers, they're very emotional and they have different ups and downs. And there's a way that they can use their own music that they love to manage their mood and, and to understand themselves better. So we're trying to work on a possible workbook for that. But that is, you know, that is not hopefully within the next couple of months I'll know if that's going to be a solid thing. Oh, great. Good luck with that. Uh, so, Rebecca, Thank give you. out any contact information, any website, any way that they can follow you or any contact information you'd like. Absolutely. I can be followed on Twitter at uh, writer, R. LeClaire, W-R-I-T-E-R-R-L-A-C-L-A-I-R, writer, R. LeClaire. The easiest way to follow what's going on with the book and to learn more about it is radioheadbook.com. And um, my contact information is in there too. You can find me on Facebook and on Twitter through radioheadbook.com. There's all kinds of fun stuff on there. I encourage people to send in their top 10 favorite songs and I post them. And there's pages for um, what to wear to concerts and music festivals. And there's news and there's information about musicology. So I do encourage people to visit it. This has been the Funky Writer Show with me, Robert Batista. I'm at, at author R. Batista on Twitter. Look for my free short stories, Carmela's Dream and My Baby Has No Name on Smashwords.com. Never lose your muse or your music. My guest has been the author and so much more, Rebecca LeClaire. And her debut novel is called Radiohead. Make sure you order your copy today. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for being a guest on the Funky Writer Show. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. A lot of fun. It was fantastic. Bye now. Bye-bye.